Is this tape in? Is this plugged in? He asked his personal secretary, Evelyn Lincoln. As John F. Kennedy sat alone in his office with his dictaphone recorder sometime in 1959 or 1960, before he was elected president, but after he had decided to run, he wanted to lay out a history of his political career and explain why he found elected office so important and personally rewarding, to explain why it had become a calling and not just a career. Mrs. Lincoln confirmed that the recorder was in fact working and switched on. The junior senator from Massachusetts began to speak. He spoke for about 26 minutes. Dictating memos, letters, and speech drafts with a microphone and recorder was a habit Kennedy had recently gotten into, as had many executives of the era. To free himself from always having to summon a secretary into his office to take shorthand notes to be typed up later in long form. That had been the standard procedure in offices around the world for over a century and had provided employment for generations of secretaries and typists. But innovations in affordable consumer recording devices offered a more efficient, more flexible option, bypassing the need for shorthand notes. And it could be done after hours, without asking secretaries to work late. It could even be done away from the office. With a dictaphone recorder, Kennedy was free to do this most time-consuming yet essential of workday chores virtually when and where he liked. The tapes, or belts in the case of a dictaphone, could then be passed to a pool of typists to be typed up. It was, of course, only a small step toward the revolution in office communications that came in the following decades, but it marked an important initial breakthrough. On this occasion, Kennedy was not dictating a letter or memorandum. It is not known precisely when he made this particular recording or why. It is possible, even probable, that he was making notes for what would one day be the first draft of his memoir. He was, after all, already an accomplished and Pulitzer Prize-winning author, well-versed in a historian's way of thinking. He made other, similar recordings later, while in the Oval Office, that were almost certainly early notes for such a book, something for him to work on after leaving office. After all, even if he had been re-elected in 1964 and lived to serve out a second term, he would not yet have been fifty-one years old when he became an ex-president. Whatever his reasons, the recording he created during that session provides a remarkable view of his thinking about politics, policy, and public service. Speaking in a matter-of-fact tone, he laid out why he thought politics mattered and the good that politicians could do despite their negative public image. The effects of coming of age politically in the era of Franklin D. Roosevelt, and having been raised in the democratic stronghold of Boston, came through strongly. And in his own words and voice, he explained why he aspired to be president. He had been a congressman and a senator. But the presidency, he said, was the ultimate source of action. That John F. Kennedy chose politics as his career was by no means inevitable. His father, the family patriarch Joseph P. Kennedy, who was never accused of lacking for ambition, audacity, or, for much of his adult life, money, 
had made it abundantly clear that he expected political greatness from his male offspring. Those hopes and dreams had been sharply focused on John's older brother, Joe Jr. When Joe Jr. was killed in action in World War II in Europe, the mantle of expectations was not automatically handed to the next oldest brother, John. As a sickly child and young man, he had been given the last rites twice. John had not grown up expecting to be a leader or to run for office. Before John Kennedy embarked on a political career, a shift in his thinking was therefore required. In his pre-presidential recording, he casts himself as a reluctant convert to a political career. Glossing over some of the earliest discussions of the possibility, Kennedy noted that about a year after his brother's death, he decided that he would try his hand at politics. There was never an epiphany, he said. There never was a moment of truth for me when I saw my whole political career unfold. It was certainly not about money. He already had plenty of family money from the fortune his father had amassed. His personal trust, managed by his father's accountants in New York, provided a generous income, so much so that since first entering Congress in 1947 and continuing through his time in the Senate and in the Oval Office, Kennedy routinely donated his salary to charity. As president, that amounted to $100,000 a year, a significant sum, about double the current presidential salary when adjusted for inflation. Nor did Kennedy lack opportunities for pursuing other career paths. He could have been a wealthy lawyer or perhaps an important figure in the world of newspapers. A career in that direction had gotten an early boost. Family connections helped land him some plum assignments that took him to the sites of several great global events. The United Nations Founding Conference in San Francisco the Potsdam Conference, where Winston Churchill, Harry Truman, and Joseph Stalin decided the fate of the post-war world, and the British elections in 1945, where the party of the wartime hero Churchill suffered a stunning defeat at the polls by Clement Attlee's Labour Party. But reporting lacked something for the restless young Kennedy. As he explained it, a reporter is reporting what happens. He's not making it happen. Even the good reporters, the ones who are really fascinated by what happens and who find real stimulus in putting their noses into the center of action, even they, in a sense, are in a secondary profession. It's reporting what happened, but it isn't participating. So Kennedy decided against that profession, although for the rest of his life he maintained a good understanding of and fascination with the media business, and unlike some of his political rivals, mingled comfortably in press circles, counting several reporters among his closest friends. By his own explanation, Kennedy felt called to participate, rather than watch from the sidelines. When combined with its corollaries of action, vigor, and decision, all virtues that he would adopt to style his political career, participation became Kennedy's self-defined approach to politics and governing. It underpinned the carefully crafted public persona that became known simply as JFK. An opportunity arose in 1946 for the young Kennedy to test the political waters. A vacancy in the 11th Congressional District of Massachusetts, a seat his grandfather had held half a century before. Suddenly, 
The time, the occasion, and I all met, Kennedy said. As he himself described it, a steep learning curve was accomplished by building momentum and growing enthusiasm for the possibilities. I moved into the Bellevue Hotel with my grandfather and I began to run. I have been running ever since. Fascination began to grip me, and I realized how satisfactory a profession or political career could be. I saw how, ideally, politics filled the Greek definition of happiness, a full use of your powers along lines of excellence in a life-affording scope. Kennedy won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in the 1946 election. Although there were times when his work interested him, he soon became frustrated at the difficulty in distinguishing himself from 434 other members of Congress most of whom had a strong interest in burnishing or building their public profiles. After six years in the House, he was again restless. I prepared to move on, he said simply. Kennedy ran for the Senate. He was successful, beating a formidable opponent with a long family lineage of Massachusetts politics, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr. Unlike his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, widely celebrated as a master practitioner of Senate rules, traditions, and power, Kennedy was unimpressed with that chamber. There is, he said, much less than meets the eye in the Senate frequently. And the key to success in the Senate was changing, as governing the nation became infinitely more complicated. A generational shift was also underway, as a post-World War II, 20th-century mindset edged out that of the 19th century. As Kennedy saw it, approvingly, politics was also becoming more of a profession, in which the hail-fellow-well-met extroverts were being replaced by quiet and thoughtful men. He soon found the strict seniority system stifling. Decades-long Senate service was not unusual. By the time Kennedy was sworn in, one member, Walter George of Georgia, was beginning his fourth decade in the Senate. Even for the most senior members, years of work could be undone by a brief vote or an even briefer presidential speech. A junior member, such as Kennedy, could count on much less. That led Kennedy to a realization. All of the things that you become interested in doing, the President can do and the Senate cannot, particularly in the area of foreign policy. In national security, defense, and foreign policy, many of the areas Kennedy was most interested in, the reality was that the legislative branch was secondary to the executive branch. Senator Kennedy lamented that it's the president who controls and who can affect results, and as he explained it, that motivated him to seek the presidency. Kennedy had five successful political campaigns under his belt before deciding to run for the presidency. He had also been in the mix of contenders for his party's nomination to be Adlai Stevenson's running mate in 1956, thanks to the publicity generated by his voiceover work for a film shown at the Democratic National Convention. That, and a best-selling and Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Profiles and Courage, gave Kennedy a national profile.